So right now we're in a, a short series in Philippians. And so the last couple of weeks we've gone through Philippians chapter 1, and man, it's tough stuff, right? Um, Philippians, on the surface, seems like this really great, loving, encouraging letter, and it is. It is, it is the gospel, it is the message of Jesus, and that brings great joy and great encouragement, and this is such a positive letter. There are no lists of don't do this and don't do that. He's proud of the Philippians, and he loves them and has a great affection for them. And we talked about the relationship that he has with this church that he's planted. And it's such an encouraging message. But as we've seen over the last couple weeks, it can also kind of dig in and challenge us. It moves us out of our comfort zone. It really gets to the heart. It gets to the heart of our faith and really challenges us to move further. You may have heard the, the phrase that preaching the gospel afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. The gospel afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. This is one of the, the crazy things about the story of Jesus and the message of Jesus that for those of us who are, are following Jesus but have gotten a little too comfortable, the message of Jesus is challenging. It pushes us out of our comfort zones and, and, and pushes us to go further in what we're doing. But for those of us who find ourselves in crisis, those of us who find ourselves to be the ones that are afflicted, who are, who are down in some way, the message of Jesus is so incredibly comfort, comforting. That the message of Jesus provides hope. It provides encouragement. And, and we can rest in that when we are in, our, in, in times of trials. When Paul is in prison, he can rest in his relationship with Jesus, rest in the promises that come from him, and he's comforted through that. And so I challenge you as we, as we go through these few weeks and, and look at the message of Jesus and really where we've been at for the whole year, as we look at this, you may find yourselves in a place where you are feeling afflicted by the message that the words that you hear are, are cutting at you in some way. And so I want to challenge you to think maybe you might be a little too comfortable. That maybe you have gotten comfortable with your faith and things are kind of easy and God is speaking to you and the Spirit is convicting you in a way that is afflicting you and challenging you. But for those of you who find yourself in a tough transition, a tough season of life, be comforted by the message be comforted by who Jesus is and the great gift of the cross. And so regardless of the side that you find yourself on, take heart to these words. Don't get too comfy. Paul spends his first chapter, the first, the first part of the letter, talking about his circumstances in prison. Less than ideal, Right? Not a comfy place. He is in a place of affliction, and he's talking about how the circumstances that he finds himself in are really creating an opportunity to advance the gospel. That because of his time in prison, because of the trials that he's facing, he considers it joy. And he challenges us in the midst of his prison sentence to live a life worthy of the gospel. A message of the cross, that if we are to be cross Followers, we are also to be cross-bearers, that we are to live worthy of that calling. 
And then he transitions a little bit into chapter 2 and gives us this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And so he talks about this challenging situation that he's in, and then he says, if you are encouraged by this, if, if the message of Jesus is an encouragement to you, if it is a comfort to you, if you share in this spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion that is welling up in you through this, then, then go all the way. Go all the way with your faith and make Paul's joy complete and make God's joy complete by living in unity with one another. That this becomes the capstone of understanding what our faith is, that we would live in unity with one another, that we love each other, that we work together to exalt Christ. If you want the image of a perfect Christian community, then you look at the unity that exists there. That you look at the joy that's there, the love that's there. And so how do we live in such a community? That might be a little challenging, right? We've had, we've had some experiences over the years of our, our walk and our faith in whatever context, here or anywhere else. You have been around enough to know that unity and love is not an easy thing. That if it's two of us, maybe we can figure that out, but that's pushing it. Think about your marriages. Think about your children, the relationships that you're in. To be completely united, to be completely loving and authentic with one another. What is that like? Is that easy? No, it is not easy. And then you multiply that over the hundreds that are involved. And now we are called to perfect unity oneness, love for one another. It's not easy. But can you imagine a place? Can you imagine a place that is like that? Such a perfect place where people are so like-minded, they are in agreement with everything because there is one thing that pulls them together, that unifying bond of Jesus. A place where there is no disagreement, there is no selfishness, there is no hate, there's no arguing, there's no bickering. Can you imagine a place like that? It takes a lot of imagination. It is a far cry from the reality that we experience. But that's what Paul is painting a picture of. That, that if we take our faith out to the fullest extent of what the cross calls us to do, then we will be in a community that is marked, that is distinguished by love by unity. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, healthy or sick, educated or not. It doesn't matter your race or your economic class or your gender. It does not matter what your background, what your mistakes have been. That all of that can come together. That diversity can come together and be united. All for the glory of Christ. And so how do we get to such a place as that? Paul goes on. 
in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to but each of you to the interests of the others. And so there it is, throwing it out there. That's easy. <laughs> wow, okay, so just don't do anything selfish. Don't do anything conceited. Be humble and things will be great. Great formula. Too bad we're human. <laughs> but this is really the formula. If, if we would really live this out, if we could get past ourselves, get past our selfish ambition, get past our vain conceit and live in humility to value others above ourselves, to place the interests of others above ourselves, what kind of environment would that be? Does that start to look like this perfect unity where love conquers everything else? And that is what Paul is calling us to here. Don't act with selfish ambition. Don't act with vain conceit, but practice humility. Selfish ambition is, is, is a mess. It says things like, well, they're making this amount of money, so I've got to make this amount of money. They're at this level of happiness, so I've got to get to this level of happiness, a bit happier than them. They live in this size of house, so I have to be in a bigger house. They have this many Facebook friends, so I've got to go get a few more and have a, a few more Facebook friends. They have more likes and comments than me. As followers of Christ, nothing should be done out of a motivation of self-ambition of selfishness, trying to promote yourself. Some, some translations tra translate this phrase selfish ambition to the word rivalry. Have you ever had a rivalry? Maybe somebody at, at work or school or somebody in your family or somebody who you're just trying to one-up. That is this constant competition between who has something better than the other. It's the ultimate of one-upmanship. It is keeping up with the Joneses, not those Joneses, <laughs> keeping up with the Joneses gone really bad. It's really living as if Christ did not do what he said he was going to do on the cross. It's living as if he had not paid the price. It's living as if we are not perfectly in victory through him, that we haven't already received the infinite and eternal riches from him. Acting with selfish ambition says, I've got to beat them. And this idea of vain conceit is, is all about appearances. It's all about saving face. It's, it's pride that connects our feelings to our image, to how we look. Do you compare yourselves to others and become bitter when you think you don't measure up? Do you struggle with envy and jealousy anger or malice because you keep seeing the success of others or the joys of others and you compare them to your own. Facebook is horrible for this. Look at all those happy faces and great vacation pictures and everything's going great and we start comparing ourselves to the Facebook reality of others. Do you find yourself despising others because of the joy that they have, because of the success that they have? And so instead, Instead of this selfish ambition, instead of this conceit, we're called to humility. 
humility. That's an easy word, and it's not easy to do. This is not the solution that you would hope for in reading through this. As you think of the formula for a mature church, a formula for a mature faith, I would much rather have some other checklist to work toward than, number one, humility. Because that's hard. It's hard that, that the way we are, are wired through, through the, the, the fall, at the, just at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, that things fall apart and break because we can't get past ourselves. We can't get past our own selfishness. Surely there's another way that we can get to maturity. Surely there is some other formula that we can get to a healthy church other than humility. Let's go find that path. And boy, do we. We will find any other path that we can work around that is so much easier than the path of humility. We will find ways to work around relationships, work around people, and not have to face humility. But we're called to value others more than ourselves. We're called to elevate their interests above our interests. Selfish ambition and vain conceits are the exact opposite of this. They, they come from a belief that we are due more than we have received. That we are worthy of more than we're getting. And humility says the exact opposite. Paul is really attacking this idea of pride. Pride that gets in the way of so much. Pride says, I've got it all figured out. Pride says, I've got this. I don't need your help. I don't need your assistance. I don't need you telling me what to do. I've got this. Pride is an assertion of independence, of, of self-allegiance and special knowledge. We think we have that knowledge, that we've got it right. It's kind of like that knowledge that you get when you eat that forbidden fruit. This is so deeply ingrained in our fallen nature. And you can even see this in, in someone as young and innocent as, as like my five-year-old daughter who wants to assert herself and has way too much of her dad in herself that says, I've got this, I can figure it out, I don't need your help. I'm going to push you away. I can get it done. And so even at that age, we are, are pushing people away. And we push God away. Because we can do it. We've got it figured out. And what that really says is, I am right. And if I am right, that means somebody has to be wrong. And it probably means you. And so that we get in this conflict because I, I am convinced that I'm right. And that means that you don't know what you're talking about. That, that, that in my pride, I can handle this. And it doesn't allow me to hear my brothers and sisters. It doesn't allow me to put the interests of my brothers and sisters ahead of my own. It does not allow me to push my own interests aside for the sake of your interests. And God is so adamantly opposed to the proud. He speaks against this over and over. In Proverbs chapter 6, he says that God hates haughty eyes. In Proverbs 8, he says pride and arrogance I hate. I hate pride and arrogance. In Proverbs 16, everyone who is, is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. 
And then James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud. And that is not a side of God that I want to be on. To be opposed by him. To be at odds with him. Because I have fundamentally placed myself in the place of God by choosing myself and my own desires, my own way of being. And so we need to examine our heart every day. Do you trust him? Do you honor him? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? Do you believe that he's going to do the things that he said he's going to do? Can you look at who he is and trust in him that I put myself aside and I put him on the throne, him as Lord? And so what is the foundation, the motivation for all of this, for a life built on service and sacrifice? And Paul continues and tells us this. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant's being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The life of humility is the life that we're called to because of the example of Jesus. Because of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, his ultimate act of humility to put everybody else's interests above his own. That is our model. That is our example. That is our motivation for the life that we live as ones who bear his name that we don't just simply go along with the flow, that we are called to something else. We are called to a life of humility. And so when we live this life, Paul continues in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. When I look at the call of the cross, to bear the cross, I look at a call that is impossible. I look at a lifestyle of humility, of self-sacrifice, of putting others' interests before my own. I look at that and it is impossible. I am way too prideful. I'm way too selfish to be able to do this. And I look at that and it can be so discouraging because once again, I'm looking at my own abilities and I get caught up in that pride again. I'm prideful about my pride. <laughs> that, that to think about this Christian walk to bear a cross is, is something of my own doing, of my own skill set, of my own strength is completely misguided. That that's just more of the same, that's more of the problem that I cannot do this without God. I can't do this on my own. And Paul says, God works in us. 
that we continue to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, but in that process, God comes in and does something that's supernatural. Because what he is calling us to in a lifestyle of humility is not natural. It is not normal. We see that everywhere. The world left on its own in its own natural abilities is not leading to a life of humility. It is not leading to a life of service and love. And so I have to rely on something supernatural to be able to get this done because I am not going to be able to do it. And so we receive this promise of the Spirit. We receive the promise of God being in us and dwelling in us and working through us. And it is through His power that we're able to fulfill these good purposes. That it's through Him we can do the things that we've been called to do. And He is the one who gives us the strength. He is the one who gives us the abilities. He is the one who gives us the skills needed to do this impossible task. It's through Him and through His power. There are way too many church people who, who get caught up in trying to do this themselves. They, they get caught up in their own abilities and their own work to be able to get to their salvation, to be able to get to this place of humility. There's people at church who are, are good at presenting some sort of act of humility. They're good at presenting self-sacrifice, but they are the martyrs who are really acting out of selfish ambition, who are acting out of conceit, that they are trying to project an image of, look at how great I've got together. Look at how great of a servant I am. Look at how many activities I do. Look at how many things I volunteer for. Look at, look at me. But their joy is in their reputations. Their joy is in their acts and not in enjoying Jesus. Their motivation comes from something that is selfish. But remember, it was John the Baptist who said, we must, he must increase, but I must decrease. That we are to get out of the way, not so that we can just have this great loving utopia, but so that Jesus is exalted. So that Jesus is what is seen. Jesus is the one that shines through. That our acts of service are not just to be helpful, they're not just to be nice, but they are to proclaim the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Jesus. The pursuit of a life of service and humility is a pursuit of Jesus. We run to him, we embrace him, we long for him, we live life for him, and God empowers us to do that. Because we get stuck in our own methods. We get stuck in our own selfishness and something that is natural for us. But God comes in and does something that's unnatural. Paul continues in verse 14. I really don't like this verse. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Do we live in a warped and crooked generation? Have you watched the news? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. 
But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice through me. Is this not an incredible picture here where where Paul is wrapping up this argument that says live a life of humility, don't live a life of selfishness. Don't do anything with grumbling and complaining and arguing. Ouch. Be blameless and why? Not just so we can have a great church service, not just so we can have a great small group or a Sunday school class. We do this so that you can shine among the people that you can shine like stars, that we can be seen, that Christ can be seen through us. Because this is so unnatural, this is so different than what the world sees, that if the world actually saw this, they would be blown away. That that star would be so bright, they wouldn't be able to see anymore. It would radiate through all the darkness, it would radiate through all the junk, and people would see something different. They would encounter Jesus. They would encounter Jesus through this. If we are a people united in our love for others, if we are living humbly, if we're living sacrificially, then we will be a people that stand out. We will be different from the world around us. We will shine like stars. And Paul rejoices in that. Paul rejoices with the Philippians because this is happening there. He is rejoicing whenever he sees this. And even if he is being poured out, even if every ounce of himself is sacrificed and every ounce of himself is given into service, he celebrates in that. He doesn't complain about it. He isn't exhausted by it. He celebrates it. He doesn't whine about how much he's had to serve. He celebrates it. He doesn't complain about how many things or how many chains or how many shipwrecks or how many floggings or how many arrests. He does not complain about that. He rejoices at that. He celebrates that. He celebrates that. Because it is a calling for him. A calling that is based on a cross and a sacrifice that was made. And he will do whatever he has to do to make that message known. Living this way stands out, and we celebrate. That's why we gather every week is to celebrate. Worship is a time of celebration in who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We celebrate together because this is not a chore. This is not a burden. This is something that we, we celebrate because Jesus has done something so incredible. The sacrifices that I make are not for my own glory, or they should not be for my own glory. I want it to be said that the sacrifices that I make and the service that I place are because of Jesus and to make him known. And that's why we do the things that we do. Paul gives us two more examples of humility, as if Jesus was not enough. He comes in and talks about Timothy in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered When I receive news about you, 
I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He sends Timothy, who has just a genuine concern for the people in the Philippian church. He has a genuine concern for Paul, and it's not so that he can get something out of it. He's not trying to get a certain status or get a certain reputation. He's doing it because of a love of Christ. And he sacrifices himself for this mission, for this purpose. He's a selfless man. And then in verse 25, we've got this guy, Epaphroditus. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, to spare my sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him. Honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Here's a man who nearly died for the work of Christ, that he sacrifices himself and he risks himself up to the point of death, all for the sake of the ministry of Jesus. And both Timothy and Epaphroditus, they come in and they risk everything for the call. They risk everything for the mission of Jesus. They do it not for their selfish ambition, but so that Christ can be known. And so what does this look like for you? How do you approach your faith? Are you afflicted right now, or are you comforted? Maybe we sit in our comfortable places and think, where am I at? What does this look like for you? Do you approach your faith? Do you approach your community here at the church? Do you, com- com- do you approach that with a heart that says, how can I serve? How can I sacrifice? Do you approach your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your, your schoolmates? Do you, do you approach them and say, how can I serve? How can I sacrifice? We've got to guard ourselves against becoming a consumeristic people. People who simply show up to receive something on Sunday morning. We don't show up just to receive. We don't show up just to consume. That we we look at the cross of Jesus and we respond with a life of self-sacrifice. A life of humility. A life completely foreign to the world around us. And as Paul describes a mature church and a mature faith, as you hear that, 
What is God revealing to you? What is something that you are holding on to? Where is something that maybe you're not developed as much as you need to be developed in your maturity? A growth area, somewhere, somewhere that you need to be growing as a follower of Jesus. What is that? What is God saying to you through that? Listen to that. How are you being convicted? What is God saying to you? Because he speaks to each of us in a very unique way. It may be that you've got a lot of stuff that you need to give up first. That things are too crowded right now for you to even be able to get to this place. And it's time to let go of those things. There are things that you're holding on to, things that you still want to be selfish with. Time and money and resources and vacations and activities and school activities and sports and all the other stuff that comes in and crowds out this life that we're called to. And then there's the question of when you are in those places, what attitude do you take? When you are on the sports field, when you are in the restaurant with the waitress or the waiter, when you are with your coworkers, are you treating them in such a way where you are making a sacrifice? Is a light shining because of the way we love and treat others? There are attitudes that we have. There are situations that we have that need to be laid bare to the cross. That we surrender those things, that we repent of those things, and then we find great joy and great comfort and great encouragement in the gospel of Jesus being made known. Let's be standing. We want to spend some time in prayer, and this is, this is a time where you can pray with one another. You can, you can pray to, in, in your own quiet time. You can come forward and pray with one of the elders. This is a time for us to respond because I really want you to hear what is God saying to you? That God is speaking to you through this message in some way. What is he saying to you? Don't let go of that. Hold on to that. And then take action. What are you going to do about it? Who are you going to talk to? What are you going to change? What needs to be different for you to be obedient to what God is calling you to in this moment? Whatever that is, let's... Let's bring it before God with one another, as individuals, with the shepherds, as we pray. God, thank you so much for this message. God, a message that cuts to the heart, a message that's not comfortable, a message that is so challenging. God, I pray that you work through us and give us the strength and the courage and and the abilities to put others ahead of ourselves, to live lives of sacrifice, lives of service and love. God, may this be a place where where people recognize unity and love and see you through that, that you are glorified by that. God, we give you this time now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.